Well, man, it is great to see you this morning. God is doing some amazing things in, uh, in our church family, and uh, um, it, it was great. Um, I, you know, I, what, I, what I was amazing this morning is I, 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 I got to see my daughter singing this morning, which was awesome. Gosh, she's all a married woman now. I was like, oh, we got one more to go. Um, <laughs> in a few weeks, but, but God is good, and, and he's holding it all together. Actually, Brenda's kind of holding most of it together for me, but, um, you know, we're just leaning on the Lord, and, and he's doing great things. Um, so we're in week four of this uh, message series that we're calling Dear Church, and, and we're looking at these letters that God, um, Jesus wrote to the churches at the seven churches in Asia Minor, uh, modern-day Turkey. We're kind of going on this journey that, um, that Brenda and I, my wife Brenda and I, got to go on this last, uh, this last summer. We are incredibly blessed to be able to actually go to these locations. And I gotta tell you, being able to see them just, just makes the, the words of Scripture just kind of leap off the page. And just sometimes, sometimes it just hits you in the face. And you're like, oh my goodness, that's what happened here. And so we're, we're kind of taking a look at this and one of the things to understand is this, is that at the time that this was written, this area um, of the seven churches in Asia was the real epicenter of the Christian movement in the world. Um, Jerusalem, um, you know, a lot of times we think of it being Jerusalem, and that was great. That was obviously where Jesus, um, where Jesus lived and moved around that area where he, he died and rose again. But Jerusalem, the temple there had been destroyed, and everything had kind of moved towards the west, towards Turkey and Greece and this area. And this was the real place of mission sending um, at this point. And it was just amazing to see what God was doing there. And we were just blessed to go and to kind of walk there. Last week, we spoke about the church at Pergamum. And the church at Pergamum, we, we called them the compromising church. And we asked ourselves a few questions. The question was, where are areas in my life where I am tempted where I'm tempted to compromise, where I'm tempted to just kind of give in to different things. And what are those areas that are, that, that are struggles for me? And I need to invite the Lord in so that he can help me fight those places where I'm tempted. And then uh, in week two, we looked at the church at Smyrna, um, the, and, and Smyrna was the faithful church. And, and we asked a couple questions there, and, and, and they were, how has Jesus been faithful to me? Has Jesus been faithful to you? Man, I mean, we, I mean, you should just be able to fill pages and pages of listing the places, areas where, where Jesus has been so very faithful to all of us. But then we beg the question, well, then how are we living faithful to him? And, and that's, that's huge that we live lives that are faithful. And, and then... In week one, we talked about the church at Ephesus. And, and while it was a church that prided itself on this strong biblical teaching, um, the, and, and they had all this sound doctrine, they had lost something. Do you remember what it was? They had lost their what? Yeah, their first love. And we asked the question, what is it that's out there that's stealing my affections for Jesus? I mean, I, I might like to do you know, the church thing, I might like reading the Bible, but, but are we passionately in love with the person of Jesus? Is your desire to just be in his presence? Because I, I have to tell you something, this kind of hit me while we were studying this. 
is that I, I, love, I love to sit and, and study the Bible. I love to sit and study God's word. But something hit me that we, we were studying that, and it was this, is that when we get to heaven, do you think there will be Bible study? I'm like, I'm just gonna be in his presence. The, all of that stuff, now, now I, just get to, I just get to walk with him and, and talk with him. And it's just like, man, do you long for the presence of Jesus? And we ask, what are the things that we can do that really bolster in our lives this desire to just be in the presence of Jesus? You see, the problem in Ephesus was they were a church that was all head and no heart. Now, but what if the opposite was true? What if the problem was that you were all heart and no head? You see, some of you guys fall into that one as well. Some of you really identified with that idea that, man, I just love God's word. I love all this stuff. But yeah, when it comes to my heart, maybe I have, maybe my affections have been steered away. But for some of us, it's like, man, we're all in. We're all in when it comes to love and grace and all those things. I mean, what if we're filled with, with love, with grace? What if, what if we love to serve others passionately, but we've wavered when it comes to holding on to the truth. Well, if that was you, then you'd be Thyatira. And that's where we're going to journey to today. And so as we look at each of these churches, we're discovering characteristics that bear striking resemblance to church, to the way church happens today and even in our own personal lives as we are followers of Jesus. So some of us identify with the church at Ephesus. We, we have lots of Bible knowledge, but we aren't very good at speaking the truth, especially speaking it in love. And, and while others of us extend incredible amounts of grace and, on people, and that is awesome, but if we're going to, but, but we don't stand up and speak for the truth, and so people become, you know, so that people will become convicted, and, and we, we want them to learn that they need the forgiveness of Christ. And if we don't proclaim the truth while we're loving, then we're equally, we miss the mark. And so we, as we continue learning and growing from these churches and how Jesus encouraged and exhorted them, let's put ourselves today uh, in the church at Thyatira. So join me in Revelations chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 18, where it says this. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write. Now, the first three cities that, that we had visited um, were, were along the, the coast of the Aegean Sea. They, they were basically predominantly port cities, lots of commerce and things going on there. Today, on the, post, the Roman postal route, we start to move inland. And, and so we're about 50 miles from Pergamos. The, they, it starts to move east. And, um, and Thyatira is, is a place that you've probably never thought of much before. But Thyatira is this spot that is at the crossroads of some major trade routes in that day and age, okay, where the Roman roads intersected and, and commerce was going all over the place from, from Europe to Asia and from north to south and east and west. And Thyatira was a key kind of transition point. It was a place where those roads intersected. And so as you can imagine, you have stuff from all over the world coming across this, uh, this city, and people from all over the world who are coming there. 
And so it's this amazing city. Thyatira um, is um, the modern city of Akashar. Everybody say Akashar. I just wanted to hear you say it this morning. So um, it, it's a population of about 100,000 people. Um, uh, and we had the blessing to go and to see this place. And um, what Thyatira was most known for was its manufacturing Okay, they, they were a manufacturing, a real blue-collar city that manufactured all kinds of things. You could kind of think of it as the, like maybe the Pittsburgh or Detroit uh, of, the, of the region. Okay? Um, it, it was it, the ruins of this ancient city um, in, those, in that place, and I think we have some pictures here. Um, Brenda and I got to go there. Um, they discovered a large amount, a large amount of it, these interesting buttons and coinage that were associated with what was known as trade guilds. Okay, trade guilds. Now, two of the largest guilds in the city were the Bronze Guild and the Dyers Guild. Dyers as in dyeing, you know, like coloring stuff. Um, not people dying, okay, not like, but dying, like dying uh, different kinds of fabric. And Thyatira is only mentioned one other place in the Bible, um, and it's in the book of Acts chapter 16, verse 14, and, and they're not even in the city of Thyatira, but um, Paul was in the city of Philippi, and, and he gets introduced to a lady, her name is Lydia, and if you remember who Lydia is, Lydia is a woman who was a dealer in purple cloth, she was part, probably part of the Dyer's Guild, and so she was there in Philippi, but it tells us she was from Thyatira, right? So she was probably bringing the purple cloth from Thyatira, and she was bringing it to Philippi. And this little interesting place here, this was one of the main streets in the ruins of the city, and you can see like now it's just this modern city built up all around uh, this area where there's ruins, but each one of these little spots to the side were like these, um, they, they were like these shops and these workplaces where they would do all kinds of different work, and people from all over the world would come in and out of this place so that they could buy things. And, and their bronze was one of the things, they, they were especially known for being able to make bronze mirrors. They would shine the bronze so much that you could actually see your reflection in it. And they found like these little bronze mirrors all over the place. But like I said, the, these, these trade guilds were a huge part of the city there. Now, um, the patron god of the city of Thyatira, and remember we've been talking about how all the god worship in this area impacted the people. Um, the Greek patron god of the city was, was the god Apollo. Okay. Now Apollo was one of the, he was an incredibly powerful god um, uh, to, the, to the Greek people. Um, one of his uh, powers was that he could see into the future and he held the power of light and darkness. Now Apollo was the son, supposedly the son of Zeus, and was the one god who was given the title, the son of of God. And in Thyatira, there's inscriptions that are found that they worshiped Apollo, who was known as the son of God, okay, the son of Zeus, who was the, so he was the son of God. And with that in mind, listen carefully to how Jesus introduces himself to the church at Thyatira. He says, to the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished 
bronze. And remember, at each one of these churches, Jesus introduces himself and he says, and he's using some historical things to say, hey, guess what? You might think this is what life is all about, but Jesus says, no, I hold real life. In other words, he says, you might worship this guy, Apollo, in this city, who, who is claimed to be the son of God, but Jesus said, no, I'm the real son of God. And could you imagine when Jesus says, hey, I, I have eyes that are like blazing fire and feet like burnished bronze. I mean, would you want him coming after you looking like that? I mean, every once in a while, I get the look at home. Right? And, and, and so I identify with this, like, the look of blazing fire, right? In my eyes. And, 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 how, and living in a house with five girls, they've all learned how, how, how to give the look. And so sometimes I just know, like, I just going in, I just need to be quiet and listen, right? And, and so Jesus says, man, I'm coming and I've got this blazing fire with feet like burnished bronze. And so he's identifying with what's going on in the city. And he's saying, hey, you guys might be worshiping all these things and these things may be happening. He says, but guess what? He says, um, I, Apollo's not the son of God. I am. Apollo doesn't control light and dark. I do. Apollo isn't the one who can tell the future. He says, I'm the one that holds the future in my hands. And he says, and I'm coming. I'm coming to visit you. And his eyes are like blazing fire. So these trade guilds were a huge part of life in Thyatira. These, these guilds um, functioned somewhat like, um, like unions of sorts, but, kind of, but, but they were more, they were definitely more intrusive into your life. Um, they, they, had, uh, they were there for um, a social connection so that you had a place where you belonged, and as well as security. Um, so they didn't have, you know, social security and all those things. So you belong to one of these guilds and they would take care of you. And, and so when you were part of one of these guilds, you were part of a group of people who, who would stick together no matter what was happening. And so you had, you know, you had the, the wool guild, you had the, the dyers guild. So they would take the wool, they'd take the fabric and they would dye it and they would sell it. And the purple was incredibly important. Um, it, you may have heard in the Bible before they talk about this purple cloth that was incredibly expensive because there was only two ways you could come up with the color purple. One was this special root that was found like way to the east over in India. The other one, was to take shells um, from the Mediterranean Sea and you would crush them and you would have to soak this up for days and days and days and days in order to come up with the color purple. And so, um, they, but this is one of the specialties of this city. The, there was the bronze guild, there was the, there was the shepherding guild, there was all these different people and whatever guild it was, you belonged to that guild. If you were working in that area, you belonged to one of these guilds. And so um, if you didn't belong to one of these guilds, then you didn't work because they would basically kind of push you out, right? And, and if you didn't work, well, then what happens if you don't work, right? You, you, you don't eat. And if you don't eat, I mean, what hope for you is there in this place? And one of the practices of these guilds became known as the guild feasts. Um, a couple times a month, these guilds would get together, and this was kind of a way of taking care of one another um, and providing for one another. They would get together and have these gigantic feasts, and one of the main things that would happen is not only were these things like, um, like feasts, um, it was kind of think like company picnic gone wild, okay? 
um, what they would do is, as part of this feast, is they would usually bring in an animal, and then whatever deity they thought oversaw their guild, like, you know, um, whichever one of the gods that were being worshipped, you know, the, the bronze god, the wool god, and all these, they would bring in an animal, and they would actually sacrifice the animal to that deity, and then they would basically, you know, basically burn that thing, basically they'd barbecue it, Okay. And, and so you've got, the, they'd sacrifice the animal to the God, barbecue the meat, and then everybody would participate in eating the meat of that, of that thing. That's why you hear a lot about meat sacrifice to idols. They would come in, they would sacrifice these animals, put them on the barbecue, then everybody would eat it. And if there was anything left over, people would take it home. Now, um, the other thing that would happen is, after this kind of barbecue, what would happen, we talked about this a little bit last week, uh, at the end of the barbecue, um, everybody, especially all of the, the leaders in this thing, they would, they would come together in, into these little, um, kind of like these little rooms that have, they called them couches, we would call them beds, and, and they would just, and, and the, the party host would just start bringing in wine, and these people would just be drinking and drinking and drinking, and then they would get a little tipsy, and then tipsy would go to just flat out drunk, and and then next thing you know, they were bringing in like servants and temple prostitutes and they, they would supposedly worship by exchanging all kinds of sexual favors with one another. I mean, it was just like this, think just this mass crazy kind of orgy thing and that was the way that they would worship these gods. And the problem is, is if you didn't participate in all of this, if you didn't participate, then the, then the people in the guild would look at you and say, hey, 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 wait a minute, you're bringing the guild down because what if you don't participate, if you don't worship the God, then the God's not gonna show favor on us and then our business is gonna suffer. So they would look at you and say, man, our business is gonna suffer if you don't participate in this and if you don't participate, then man, you're out. Now think about that in terms of this, this crazy scene. I mean, what do you do what do you do if you're part of one of these guilds, but recently you hear this message from this, from this wild preacher named Paul about a savior who died and was resurrected, and, and what if you believe? And what if you become a follower of Jesus Christ, like Lydia, who was probably part of the Dyer's Guild? What, what do you do when all of a sudden the way that you've been doing life gets interrupted by the truth of the gospel. What do you do? I mean, what do you tell these people at work? I mean, how do you navigate all of that? I mean, what do you do when, when your faith collides with your work? What do you do when, when you're asked to do things that compromise your character? What do you do when following Jesus clashes with the culture that you live in? And this was the reality that the Christians in Thyatira were living in. And honestly, if we really take a pause for a minute, maybe not in the same depth, but in a many ways, this is the reality for us today trying to live as followers of Jesus Christ in Southern California in 2019. Where the culture is trying to tell us one thing and trying to squeeze us into the mold and literally looking at us as if we were crazy and yet we're trying to hold on to the truth. 
And, and, and how do we do that? So this church needed some encouragement. And like in every one of these letters, Jesus is going to give them some. So in verse 19, uh, G, this is Jesus' encouragement to the church at Thyatira. He says, I know your deeds. And I know we keep going like, man, that seems kind of scary. But the deeds were great. Jesus says, I, I know your deeds. And, and if you look at the sentence structure in the original language, he basically says, I know your deeds. And he says, your deeds of love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Where, if, where the church of Ephesus was doing less and they were less in love with Jesus, these guys are doing more, so they're growing, their faith is moving, all these great things are happening. He says, look, I know your deeds of love. I, I know that you love people. I know that you care for others. And so that's what this church was doing. And he says, I know, I know that your deeds are based in faith. I, I know that you're trying really hard to, to, to live out your faith. He says, I know your deeds of service, your deeds of you know, serving other people. Um, and and, and you know, what I, one of the things I love about our church family here is I, I, I love the fact that, man, when, when there's something that needs to get done, when we come up with things in the community, when we have serve day, when there's a, something, a project that needs to be done to serve other people, then, man, you, you people jump to it. You know, when the orphanage needs a new building, man, we're just like, boom, we're there. Right? When, when, when things happen in our community, when, when there's a natural disaster somewhere, I mean, people, you people, you, we're there. We're like, yeah, we're in. Count us in. We're doing that. And we're great at serving. And then he says, hey, and your perseverance, man, you're, you, you're not only persevering, you're excelling now because now you're doing better than when you started. And, and these things are growing. And, and man, this is a great church. This is a church that, like, I would probably sign up for. I mean, like, when's their next steps gathering? I'm like, sign me up, right? I mean, remember, now ours is tonight, 6.30. It's right across the way, right? So see how I kind of worked that in there today? So, yeah. So join, join us. But, but this is the kind of church you're like, yeah, I'm all about that, right? And Jesus gives them this encouragement. He says, man, these are, these are some areas. Man, you are loving people. You are serving. You've got a compassionate heart. You've got a heart that just says, man, I am all about others. But then verse 20 has got to show up. And in verse 20, it moves, from, it moves from encouragement to exhortation. And Jesus starts with the same word he started with a few other times where he says in verse 20, nevertheless... Like, you've been doing this good. Uh, nevertheless, it's kind of like that big but that we talked about, right? You've been doing this, but, right? I mean, there it is again. They, they were doing such a great job, but nevertheless. Uh, now, he says this, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet by her teaching and misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed idols. So you can kind of see where that was connected to what was going on in the city, right? He says, never, now, what was the problem in Thyatira? The problem in Thyatira, okay, what, what's the word that goes in the blank? Let's say it together. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. See, it wasn't just that the woman Jezebel was doing her thing. It was that the church was actually tolerating it. The church was like sitting by and saying nothing while she spewed out her, her doctrines that were false. I mean, tolerance is a buzzword in our world today, isn't it? 
I, I mean, I found this out firsthand. Um, for years and years, um, you know, uh, as we, I'm thinking about this stuff a lot, is we, were, we were actually packing up our daughter's stuff at our house. And we were putting all the stuff in boxes so that they can, praise God, take it to their new homes, right? Um, and we're packing all the stuff, and, and I'm, we're, we're looking at old yearbooks, and I'm getting all nostalgic and a little bit of, oh, you know, my daughters are all gone, you know. It'll be okay, Brenda, and, you know, stuff like that. She's already painting the rooms, and she's like, it's awesome. So we're looking at all this stuff. For years and years, I served on different kinds of um, advisory councils and things with, with our school district. And, you know, you can read all kinds of stuff, and there's always going to be battles going on there. Several years ago, when, when uh, our daughters were like in elementary, junior high, I was on a special uh, committee, advisory committee, um, that handled some of the curriculum. And believe it or not, they wanted a pastor on this, on this thing. And um, we started looking at some of the different curriculum, and one of the curriculums that came across our, our desk, basically, was a character curriculum. And, and, and I started reading in depth about this character curriculum, and one of the big catchwords through this thing was the word tolerance. So I show up at a meeting, and I'm sitting in a meeting, and all of a sudden I said, yeah, I kind of got a problem with this. And I, I could all of a sudden just feel, right? It was just like the feel the tension in the room, because uh-oh, the pastor's got a problem, right? And I said, I, I just, I have a problem with this tolerance thing. And I gotta tell you, man, I, I have felt this, I have felt this tension before in my life. Because here I am sitting in a room with about 12 other people, and 11 of them are staring me like I am out of my stinking mind. Like, how could you possibly have a problem with tolerance, right? And that's what our world is looking at today. Like, how could you have a problem with this? And I simply said this, I said, well, look, here's the deal. If you really understand what tolerance means, tolerance basically means to turn a blind eye, right? I mean, even, even in the Greek, the, the Greek word for tolerance is aphiame, which actually comes from the word, the, the root word to forgive, but it actually means to overlook, like in the Bible where forgiveness is to overlook an offense, okay, it's to overlook, it's to bypass, to not pay attention to that. And I said, I don't want my kids to be tolerant. I don't know about you, but if somebody's getting bullied, if somebody's getting abused, if there's an injustice in the world, do I want my kids to turn a blind eye to that? See, the problem is, is y'all want to, you know, let everybody do their own thing. The problem is, what happens when everybody's own thing bumps into the truth of the gospel and it comes out wanting, what do we do? Do we have the courage to stand up and say, hey, look, there, there's a better option than this. There's a better way to do life. That quite honestly, Jesus, okay, love incarnate, came down and showed us that there was a better way to do this life. And guess what? Sometimes, yes, we have to say no to different things and different people. And, and, and so, I mean, you know, this feeling, of, and, and maybe some of you have experienced this before in, in, in your workplace or in different places in the community, where all of a sudden, man, if, if you start to stand up for what's right, people look at you like you're nuts. 
And see, the problem here in Thyatira was that, again, it wasn't that Jezebel was kind of doing her false teaching. It was that the church was, they were tolerating, they were turning a blind eye to this. Now, now who's Jezebel? You might remember the story. Uh, Jezebel uh, became a queen back in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Kings. In chapter 16, starting in verse 29, I want to read for you just real quickly who she was. It said this, um, in the 38th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, you might remember, and that's not like the guy who uh, with Moby Dick, right? It's a different guy. Ahab, the son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was another bad king, but he also married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal uh, that he had built in Samaria. And Ahab also made an Asherah pole. And he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. So this this is kind of a, a bad guy to start with. But then it says, and also he married Jezebel. She's the daughter of the king of Sidon. And, and this guy's name, it's kind of interesting. His name was Ethbaal, which means the one who stands with Baal. Okay? And Baal was this horrible other Canaanite god. And, and we discover that she introduces Baal worship into the Israel, into the, the Israel's community. And and she doesn't tell Israel, like, you have to stop worshiping Yahweh, you know, the God that gave you the Ten Commandments. Like, you don't have to stop doing that, but why don't you just add to it, right? She's like, hey, if one God's good and he does this, then, then, then more gods are better, right? And so, and the people start to fall for this. The people start to fall for all this stuff, and they start worshiping God, and it becomes the total downfall of the nation. Now, one guy stood up. A guy you may have remembered, uh, Elijah, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And, and, and it's basically, um, Elijah steps up and says, hey, this is wrong. We need to tear down the high places to Baal. We need to get rid of this uh, altar to Baal. We need to like not worship other gods. And he says, I, I, in fact, he basically challenges the prophets of Baal to a battle. And he says, let's go up to Mount Carmel. And he says, take the 400 prophets of Baal that sit at Jezebel's, Jezebel's table and let's meet on Mount Carmel. And if you remember the story, they build two altars, all this stuff goes on. God wins and Elijah slays all 400 of Jezebel's prophets. Go home and read it. If you like action, let your junior high boys read this. It's awesome. Okay. Elijah just chases them down, slays all of them. But Jezebel stands in opposition and goes, you know what, Elijah? By the end of this day, God help me, you're going to be just like one of those prophets. And Elijah, even after this crazy victory, he runs scared from this woman. Who'd have thought, right? Nothing like a woman scorned, right? So she's after him. He goes and hides, and he hides in a cave, and God finds him, and God goes, dude, what's up? You know, why are you in the cave? And he says, Jezebel's after me. He goes, we handled the 400 prophets. Don't you think we could handle this? Right? And so long story short, you know, finally Jezebel's after him and all these crazy things are, are, are going on. 
And, and meanwhile, her husband Ahab is this kind of this kind of wimp of a king. There's this other story in First Kings 21 where um, Ahab wants to like take over this guy Naboth's vineyard. Um, again, go home and read these incredible stories. And he goes and he's trying to get this vineyard from the guy. And, the, and finally Naboth, he's like, this is the vineyard in my family. I can't sell it. I, I'm, not, I'm not doing it. And so he goes home and it actually says that Ahab was like sulking in the palace. He's like home sulking. Jezebel comes home and she looks at Ahab and she goes, what kind of a king are you? Okay. She's all, you're a pretty wimpy king. She's all, this is, I'll show you how to do this. And she goes out and she basically manipulates the situation, gets guys to testify against Naboth and basically has Naboth taken out and killed, right? And then she looks at Ahab and she's all, that is how you do business, right? Now, when she did that, however, one of, the, one of God's prophets said, this is gonna be your undoing. And basically he says, you're gonna die and the dogs are gonna eat your body, Right? I'm telling you, read your Bibles. There's crazy stuff in there. So what's amazing is, is even you know, switching back to Thyatira, in the midst of all of this crazy stuff going on, in the midst of people turning a blind eye, in the midst of this bad teaching of Jezebel, God shows incredible mercy. In, in verse 21, it says, I have given her time to repent of her immorality. But the key is it says, but she's unwilling I've given her chances. I mean, do you know how patient God is with us? Can I get an amen and a praise God that he's patient with us? I mean, if every time we misbehaved, you just got a smack from God, think about how incredibly patient God is. And the Bible tells us he's patient. Why? He wants us to come to repentance. And we say this over and over again. Repentance is a wonderful thing. Repentance is this opportunity for us to say, God, I get it. And, and, and to come to God and say, Lord, I, I, am, I am broken and hurting, God. And I, I have sinned against you. And the good news about repentance is, is that God's word tells us that every time we get to that place in our life and every time we see things in our life that shouldn't be there and every time we say, God, I've made a mess of this again. He is so forgiving and merciful and just and says if we will ask for forgiveness, he will forgive us. I mean, that's the kind of God we serve. But, but this Jezebel, whoever she is in Thyatira, we know from the Jezebel in the Old Testament, she is unwilling to repent. And what happens if you go long enough and are unwilling to repent? Well, God shows his mercy for a while but then all of a sudden, God declares her, her punishment. And this is what it says in verses 22 and 23 of Revelation 2. He says, so I will cast her on a bed of suffering. Remember the, 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 the guilt feast? You know, they would all lay on these beds and do all kinds of horror. Now he says, I'm gonna, now I'm going to cast her on a bed of suffering. I'm going to make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. And unless they repent of her ways, I will strike her children dead. I mean, think about how, so, in other words, if she doesn't repent, what hope is there for her children? 
If she doesn't turn from, from tolerating like the simpleness and, and tolerating false doctrine, what hope is there for the kids? Folks, this is where the church is. This is why we have to hold the sound teaching. This is why we have to continue to look to the Bible as our guide. Because if we fall, what hope is there for our kids? He says, and then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each according to your deeds. In other words, what he says is this, you got to remember this, I know you were doing good at serving, I know you were good at all these deeds, but guess what? All the good deeds in the world don't amount to salvation. It's only trusting the Lord. It's only putting your faith in him. And our good deeds flow out of our faith. And so he's saying, hey, we can't have this. And so what happens? Well, look what happened to the original Jezebel in the Old Testament, right? Remember he says he was going to throw her down on this bed uh, of suffering? Um, in, in 2 Kings 9, and again, go home and read all these stories, but I'll just encapsulate a little bit. Um, king Ahab gets overthrown and everything else, and, um, and, and there's this new king, Jehu, and he comes riding into town, and he's coming up, and he's riding on a horse, and he comes outside the city gates, and he says, hey, you guys up there in the palace, Somebody throw Jezebel out the window and out the, uh, off the wall of the city, right? And it says that the eunuchs that used to tend to her, they're like, heck yeah, we don't like her anyways, Woo! right? And they literally toss her out, and it says that her body fell along the, the walls of the city, and, and, and she kind of splat on the bottom, and says her blood splattered against the wall. And then the dogs of the city came and ate her, and ate everything except her head and her hands and her feet, right? I was just like, I mean, this is crazy stuff, right? It's good when you're a junior high boy, like I said, but you're like, hey, God says, man, and he says, throw her down, right? Now... You do not want to find yourself in opposition to a righteous God. Because while he's merciful, a time will come when he will exact justice. And he will say the truth will prevail. And he looks at the rest of the people in the church at Thyatira, the ones who haven't yet fallen, and he says this. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. It's like, hold on, guys. There will be stuff all over this world that's going to tempt you to, to get pulled the other way. There's going to be all kinds of things that you're going to be asked to tolerate. But don't do it. Hold on. Don't compromise. Don't tolerate unsound teaching. And then he goes on and he, with a promise. And he says this in, in Revelations 2.26. He says, to the one who is victorious and does my will. As opposed to my will. <laughs> right? If we'll do his will, not our will, he says, to, if we'll hold on to that to the end, I will give them authority over the nations. See, folks, the victory's already won. Jesus already won the battle like we've sang before. The thing is, we've got to hold on to that victory. We've got to claim his victory. And when we get faced with these things in our lives where we're asked to tolerate, where we're asked to compromise, we need to say, no, because the victory has already been won. And why on earth, if the victory has already been won, would you want to go over to the other side for a while? 
And the reality is we've got to hold on to the truth. And just as for the people in Thyatira, there will always be a wrestling match in our lives between the world's culture and the culture of the kingdom of God. And that's where we find ourselves. I mean, folks, we are called to be God's holy people holding on to the truth. And we cannot tolerate the things that are contrary to the truth of Scripture. Ahab married Jezebel. You know why? It was politically expedient to do so. Because it would, it would, it would mark peace between another nation. Didn't Ahab know the history? That, that, that if people didn't want peace with Israel, that God would overthrow them anyways? That they would conquer those nations anyways? Didn't Ahab understand that? But instead, he takes it into his own hands and he says, no, I'll just marry and this is politically expedient to do so. And guys, how many things are we asked to because it's, whether it's politically or financially or relationally expedient at the moment, what kind of things do we end up doing? Or let's put it this way, what kind of things are we asked to tolerate? What's interesting is I looked up, I did a word study through the, the entire Bible of the word tolerance and all of its uses, and here's what I found. Tolerance is not mentioned anywhere in Scripture as a virtue. Every time tolerance is mentioned in Scripture, it is a problem. Go home and do your own study. If you want all the verses, I'll give them to you. But go and read them all. It, it's not a virtue. Now, is loving people with grace and mercy, is, is, taking, is going to people who are living in brokenness and sinfulness and loving those people, is that a virtue? Absolutely. But to simply tolerate things and let them continue to go, I mean, that's like watching somebody walk out in front of a truck and saying nothing, right? But our world has got us duped into this place that says, don't interfere. Whatever you do, don't interfere. Let people go their own way. And I'm here to tell you that that is not the virtuous life that God has called us to. He has put us in this world so that we can help save some. Uh, if you were here for our Messy Grace series, you heard um, Pastor Caleb uh, talk about this tension that we need to live in and work out. The struggle is real, folks, and when the world's culture moves against God's truth, there is tension, and we struggle to live in this culture and not adopt its norms. The culture adopts things as normal, things that are in opposition to God's truth, and we cannot turn a blind eye to that, and we cannot affirm what is contrary to God's word. Now, a phrase we hear all the time is this idea that we need to be in the world but not of the world. And, 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 there's, and, and it's not a, that, there's actually not a verse that actually says that in the Bible. It, now, it, it, it's not contrary to Scripture, but, but where, the, where we pull that from is, is John chapter 17. And this is Jesus' prayer before he leaves, before he you know, dies and ends up in heaven, right? He says, this, um, he says I, he's talking about his disciples. That, that would be us today. And he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Have any of you ever kind of felt hated by the world before? If you're always getting along with the world, that's when you should worry. He says, for they are not of the world. Okay. He says, any more than I am of the world. 
He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. See, one of the mistakes that we make in the church oftentimes is, and we talk about this all the time, is we gotta get out of the walls. We build up a fortress mentality where we say, hey, we're just gonna, we're just gonna hunker down over here and let the world basically do its thing. Let the world go to hell, right? It's what we do. We, we build up this fortress. We say, we're just, gonna, we're just gonna protect ourselves over here. Folks, he's saying, hey, no, God does the protecting. We don't have to build up anything. And we certainly shouldn't build up walls that keep us from people who need to hear the gospel. Okay? He says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. So they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth, so we need to stay holding on to God's word. And he says, as you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. See, part of the thing is this, is God desperately wants us to head into the world with a message of his grace and forgiveness. Now, when people hear that their sins need to be forgiven, will they sometimes feel offended? Yeah. I read the Bible and get offended all the time. I read the Bible and go, man, I am messing up. But it's an opportunity to repent. See, God doesn't want to pull us out. He doesn't want us to hide from the world. He doesn't want us to just tolerate or turn a blind eye. He wants us to engage, folks. He wants us to engage with the world that is destined for a Christless eternity. And we have the words of life and we have the words of hope. And far too often we are just standing silently and letting everybody do their own thing on the wide road to you know where it leads. So, folks, the world needs us. And they don't need us to tolerate sin, but they need us to demonstrate real love, real grace, with great doses of truth that are spoken in love to people. And it comes by building relationships with others and going out and loving on people and helping them know that there is a better way to live. The question is, where are you living in the tension with the world? Or maybe where have you been cozying up too much to the world? We must be a church that lives out love, the love of God while holding on to the truth of God. You see, Jesus didn't turn a blind eye to our sin. He didn't tolerate our sin. He died for it. I mean, I'll say that one more time. Really absorb this today. Jesus did not turn a blind eye to your sin. He did not tolerate your sin. He died for your sin. And each week we gather around the Lord's table we have communion where we're reminded again when we take the, the little piece of bread that represents Jesus' broken body and the cup that represents his shed blood, we are reminded that Jesus died for us. There was a price that Jesus paid for our salvation. 
If anybody could have ever possibly said, you know what, let's just kind of, let's just kind of do this over again. Let's just kind of let that go. Let's kind of, if anyone had the power to do anything like that, it would have been Jesus, right? But Jesus says, no. The justice and truth are real. And there's a price that has to be paid and you and I can't pay it. So Jesus said, look, I'm going to pay the price. And so he didn't overlook. He didn't tolerate what we do. He didn't love us so much that he turned a blind eye. He loved us so much that he took on our punishment so that we could have life. And today, if you've been cozying up to the world, maybe today is a wake-up call for you. If today you've been struggling with this whole idea of tolerance, I, I hope that today you will just hold on to God's word and seek the truth and learn how to love people in it. And my prayer today is if you don't already know this amazing love of the Savior, that today you would encounter him in a way where your heart is laid open to him and you just say, I want to have a God that would not turn a blind eye to my desperation, my brokenness and my sinfulness, but would come and pay the price for me. And if you need to know more about him, then my prayer is that you'd come and talk to, to myself, to one of our elders who will kind of be sitting in the back corners over here today. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to make Jesus Lord of your life. Because if you're going to make it in this world, you need his victory that's already been won. So as we take communion today, let's rejoice in that and realize that he died to purchase our salvation. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who loves us so much. And Father, we, we pray that, Lord God, you would... You would just help us to know that, Lord God, the victory is already won in Jesus Christ. And Father, help us, help us, Father, to be able to, to reach out to the people around us that are in desperate need of your love, the people who've been hurt by the, the, the false narrative of the world, and that, Father, we would reach out to them, and, and Father, not just point at them and not just accuse them, but Father God, we would embrace them and pull them in to the love that you have given to us. So, Father, help us not to just tolerate. Help us to embrace others. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And in the powerful name of Jesus, we thank you. Amen.